0: I have the pleasure to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Vivian Bukai. Uh, she's a great friend of SDPA and, and Dermatology Physician Assistants. She has spoken to us before, and uh, her
1: specialty is primarily in uh, injectables and uh, facial aesthetics. She's from San Antonio, Texas. Uh, this meeting, actually to be
0: truthful, this meeting's agenda has been actually surrounded around her, She was one of the first people that I called to uh, get here after
1: I'd read an article uh, this spring. Um, She is going to be uh, sharing some of her personal experiences um, with uh, melanoma and has agreed uh, to come and talk to about that today. Thank you. Let me please welcome Dr. Bukai. Well, what a-
0: thank you so much, Greg. What a nice introduction. Thank you, and uh, thank you for pinning me down since January 4th, sitting around on a Sunday afternoon. It may not have been January 4th, but school, the kids hadn't gone back to school yet. And um, I was thinking, gosh, I don't have any trips planned this year. I mean, what, AAD, San Francisco, but nothing. And then up pops the screen with a letter from Greg that says, you know, would you like to speak? And so this has been on, on, the, on my agenda for the whole year, and now I've planned my trips around this. And um, and well, thank you so much for um, for listening to what I'm, you know, going to talk about. I'm not very good with these microphones; I pretty much hate them. And um, let's see. Here we go. So bear with me if I um, seem to not be able to to work the. Oh, I see. What was this thing called? Not the the big monitor, the friendly monitor. Let me come over this way to do that. All right. So. I've been in practice now, this will be my, starting my 20th year in practice. Uh, I'm really impressed with how our specialties expanded and grown and how your group has grown, it's unbelievable. And uh, the caliber of the presentations are wonderful. Did I lose the microphone again? And I hope that this will be kind of a fun thing. I'll try to put some humor into it, into what's not always a funny subject. And at the same time, I will also, Probably throw in some little pearls that you can always use with your patients as well, right? Because hopefully, when we you know go through something personal, we can also um, we learn something, and then hopefully we can teach others something as well. And and it is about it is about that. So I still have my my volunteer faculty appointment at uh, UT Health Science Center in the Department of Physician Assistant Studies, and we've had that the students just keep getting more and more amazing. And I always look forward to when we're going to have a student rotating through through the, um, the office because that's extra help and people who really want to work. Yeah, and, and that's what I like. I like your commitment to educating yourselves, educating your patients, and taking care of your patients. Okay, enough of that. Let's see if I can do this. I love this saying. I actually... Learned about this when I had um, first been diagnosed. I went to meet with a woman, Margie Baseman, who's um, a doctor of naturopathy, but she's also an RN. Her husband uh, works at the Health Science Center, and her children are physicians. So she had been recommended to me by other patients that says, I know you're going to be doing traditional things, but let, think about what you might want to, just to support your body as well. So I really like this little slide that I saw in a presentation, and it's a saying by Plato. And it talks about, well, you can read it for yourself, we can easily forgive uh, a child who's afraid of the dark. The real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light. So things are there for you, look at them, take what you want you know, from the talk as well. And I'm leaving later on today, but my email I think was up there, and if it wasn't, Greg has it. So Rose has it, everybody has my email. Okay, I'm gonna ask a favor from AV. Is there a way that I can look at the monitor as I'm standing up here and also work the microphone because I can't, uh, either I go over there and talk or I can't see it over here. I just don't know it by heart. AV, AV, no AV. All right, then I'll go move the screen myself. Just, (laughs) (laughs) maybe it's because I'm vertically challenged but it cuts off right there, can't see it. now right, now's the time you can keep eating and uh doesn't matter. How's lunch? Good? Good. Isn't this, isn't this place beautiful? And The weather's perfect. I was here in July and it was 115 degrees and the only place that I could seek shelter was at the department stores. So that was my, really my area of expertise. My husband will say is in um, shopping, uh, particularly in the shoe department. So that's... It'll be on in a second. Are we good to go? Yeah, I like this much better, much better. All right, now I can stop talking gibberish. All right, so some thoughts. And pardon these backgrounds, I got a new laptop because my other one had crashed. So last night I was scrambling trying to put this together or rather early this morning. So if they're hard to read, I apologize. The, uh, so some thoughts. First, we need to become educated medical consumers. Everything that happens in our lives provides an opportunity for learning. And we have to assume significant responsibility for our own health and healing. And we also don't need to apologize for taking time to take care of ourselves. One of the challenges I faced in this is having uh, a medical diagnosis of melanoma, but also being known for doing a lot of cosmetics. And even though there was this rumor that because I wasn't filing insurance anymore, um, that I didn't do medical dermatology, of course I do medical. And uh, on my website, one of the things that I have is that health and beauty are not mutually exclusive, and I firmly believe that. And I'll, and I'll come to that later on. And uh, so why don't we jump into sun? You know, I'm gonna like I said, I'm gonna teach a little bit, and, um, and I'll interweave my story with it. So sun exposure is photo damage, all right? Everyone knows chronic sun exposure leads to aging of the skin. Every patient comes in and says, no, the sun doesn't do anything to me. Look, I don't have spots. I don't have cancers, et cetera. Then you just expose a little bit of of covered areas, like the buttocks, and lo and behold, it's completely different skin, and that's how it would look. Another great area is that that area just under the chin on the neck where we have that natural awning there that that keeps that skin protected. So 80% of skin sides of aging are due to environmental causes, predominantly chronic sun exposure, but also smoking. Only 20% is truly genetic. And uh, I had been asked to speak on this uh, same kind of topic for the national sales meeting for Avena Neutrogena back in January. And um, that was a short, uh, short notice invitation, not, not, a, not as well planned as, as Greg's. So I'm taking some of those slides as well. So electromagnetic spectrum, as you know, is defined by wavelength and frequency. All right, we go from shortest to longest. The shorter the l- wavelength, the higher the frequency and the more reactive it is with human biology. So it's just important to remember that, that that that, that is why rays do react with the skin and do change the DNA in our skin. The radiation in the 400 to 700 nanometer is known as light and cells in the human retina are sensitive only to this wave band, to these wave bands. And ultraviolet, back to what UVR is, because everybody just seems to think it's the, you know, when you're talking SPF or something. But you've got the UVC, which are the germicidal, UVB which are the erythema, and UVA, which are the black light. And I thought, just because I love to throw in trivia, and if somebody already knew this, please stand up. But, um, so it became endorsed at the second International Congress um, on Light in Copenhagen in 1932, and again in 1970, by la Commission Internacional de l'Eclairage, or the CIE. So these are kind of newer terms. This wasn't always around. And, um, and human exposure to solar UV, UV radiation is normally limited to the ground level. Now, attenuation and scattering in the Earth's atmosphere affect the quantity and quality of UV radiation reaching the Earth's surface. And uh, UVC of 290 or less is absorbed by the stratosphere, ozone. UVB is strongly attenuated, but what I really wasn't aware of is that UVA is transmitted pretty much unaffected. What comes through is what comes to the ground in contrast to UVB. And that's something that I never bothered to think about but it all has practical applications. So factors affecting terrestrial UV radiation, time of the day. 20 to 30% of the total UV radiation does come between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. 75% is between nine and three. But there's still some percentage a little bit after that and guess what? In the wintertime, it's slightly richer in UVA because of the Earth's tilt. So patients will tell you, oh, I don't need to be as diligent with my sunblock, etc. Uh, but you can tell them, actually, more is coming through. And, uh, and, of course, the highest doses are going to be at the equator. Altitude for every kilometer increase, there is an increase of 10 to 25% UV irradiance. And interesting facts about reflection, because I've gotten to thinking about, well, why do people like when you're treating a melasma patient and they're putting on a hat and they're sitting under the shade, and they've got their sunblock on, and all kinds of things are happening. You know, you're trying. Why do they still get dark? And I was thinking, uh, duh, it's because it's being reflected from the ground. So even if you've got this hat on, there's something that's the incidence hitting there and then coming back up. So those are just things that, that I thought it was interesting. So the ground uh, reflects less than 10%, snow 30 to 80%, sand 15 to 30 and water less than 5 So you can counsel your patients accordingly to what areas, you know, what their exposure is going to be. And cloud cover, cloud, even if it's solidly cloudy, it only reduces the UV radiation by 50%. History of sunscreens. Um, we don't have to dwell on this, and I apologize for not having uploaded this earlier on uh, to you all. But I'm happy to to well, I, we put it on the flash drive here, so I'm I'm sure it can be made available to you, or I can I can send it to you as well. But um, but you look at in the 1928, that was the first commercial sunscreen. And it was developed in the U.S. In the 1930s, there was one in Australia. These were all geared to UVB. And it was not until the 1980s that we got avobenzone or the Parcel 1789 for UVA. And it turned out to be quite unstable. And later on, there, there's a technology to give it stability so that it actually will do something when when, patients are, when people are out in UVA as well. UV protectants, PABA, salicylates, cinemates, um, and triazines. So what do we have now that we typically use? Uh, the, at the bottom, you'll see it's dibenzoyl ben, di- methanes, or avabenzone, is the only one available in the U.S. And again, the problem is a photodegradation or stability. And, uh, and then, of course, now with recent technology, there's enhanced stability. And one of the, the products that's easy to recommend, and I'm not here speaking for them, but you do hear about the Helioplex technology in the... Um, Neutrogena products, and Aveeno, also in the same Johnson & Johnson umbrella, has also their, their version of it. But those are those are nice things to know uh, as well. Um, again, physical blocker, blockers, broad-spectrum UVA and UVB, and they scatter, reflect, and absorb UV radiation, visible light, and some infrared as well. You've got zinc oxide, titanium dioxide, iron oxide, kaolin, ichthymol, tal- calamine, and uh, but look how interesting this is: micronized preparations. So the ones that are elegant to use, right? Not the big blob of you know, you know, looks like dusted anointment uh, to keep the sun out. Uh, so micronized preparations reflect UVR but not the visible wavelength, so they appear invisible on the skin. So they're, and they're very stable. There's no photoallergy or contact dermatitis to the pure substance. So how cool is that? You've got that you can do these elegant ones, and it's going to reflect the UV radiation but not the ones in the visible spectrum. And that's why they look invisible. In case you were wondering why you could put on something that was a transparent zinc oxide, now you know why. Bless you. So role of UV radiation in skin cancer. Well, UV radiation uh, induces immunosuppression. It's depletion of Langerhans cells. Langerhans cells are located in the epidermis, and they play a cr- critical role in immune surveillance. And trust me, I hated learning immunodermatology and residency. Hated it, thought it was complicated, and it's only getting much more difficult. But the relevance to this is that melanoma is one of the tumors that tends to be notoriously resistant to chemotherapy and responds better to immunotherapy so that's why i'm giving a little you know a little visit to the immune system here so L. Langerhans cells encounter antigens of all types infectious agents contact allergens tumor antigens um, and then present them to the t helper lymphocytes for immune response uvr though depletes the number and function of the langerhan cells inhibits an immune response allowing antigens to be tolerated and do their damage whether infectious allergic or carcinogenic. Of course, you can turn it around. We've done what? We've done PUVA therapy over the years. Now we have narrowband UVB. UVB. So, but still, we're using UV radiation to suppress maybe an overactive immune system. So for example, in psoriasis, where you don't want the invasion of, of white blood cells into the epidermis and, and the chain of events that follows, that's why that has worked. Why do topical corticosteroids work, right? Because corticosteroids in her, inhibit the demargination of white cells from the vascular walls. So you keep, the, you keep that out of the, the epidermis, the dermis. So um, so you can take immunosuppression and use it to your advantage, but by and large, you know, for certain disease states, but by and large, uh, it is better to have an intact immune system in the skin. So again, Somebody's outside. You get rid of the, the, the vigilante, the vigilant cells there, and uh, things can come in and uh, do their thing because they were never presented um, to the T helper cells. Now, role of UV protectants, what do they do? Well, they block the effects of UV radiation on the Langerhans cells. They protect the skin's immune system, maintains the number and function of LCs. The more T helper cells, less T suppressor cells, enhanced immune response, decreased incidence of skin cancers. So you can see with psoriasis patients, they go out in the sunlight and they typically will get better. And uh, they don't want to wear sunblock. But we do know that the UV radiation gets you. With skin cancers, back in a uh, long time ago, um, I think it was Stern, and this is back in Boston, thousands and thousands of patients that had undergone uh, Geckermann therapy for psoriasis or, and, or the PUVA therapy, they, um, well, they definitely had a lot higher incidence of, of actinic keratosis, squamous cells, basal cells, etc. So that, that's a lesson right in there. So the immune system has a memory, okay? So a good immune response creates cells that have a memory that can recognize unfriendly antigens and protect the body from harm. So this is how I think about it and I think the women will appreciate this and the men will certainly understand it. So think of the immune system as a woman scorned. It doesn't forget and will use every opportunity to attack when appropriate. It's better to be nice from the get go and avoid problems. So that's that's the very important pearl. So controversies in sun protection for every person that, you know, we've got our patients that are very savvy. They come to you and say, no, but doctor, I read that people who use sunblock have more cancer than those, than those who, who, do, you know, who don't use it. Well, does sunblock increase the risk of skin cancer? Is there anything to the theory of nanoparticles uh, being absorbed uh, where they shouldn't be? Um, something to think about: Do ingredients like mineral oil and sodium lauryl sulfate cause skin cancer? Does sun protection increase the risk of vitamin D deficiency, which affects calcium, which may which uh, may lead to osteoporosis? Sorry for that typo. Uh, does sun protection lead to vitamin D deficiency, which in, which um, in turn, then increases the risk of skin cancer and other cancers as well. Because we know that vitamin D3 plays an integral role in the body's immune system. So where there's the paradox. How do you keep yourself out of the sun, and yet at the same time, get the supplement that you need to help your immune system as well? There's actually an official position statement from the American Academy of Dermatology. And I know Daryl Regal will be speaking to you all tomorrow. I'm sorry to miss his talk. Uh, But the position statement on vitamin D, the AAD recommends that an adequate amount of vitamin D be obtained from a healthy diet, foods, beverages, fortified with vitamin D and or vitamin D supplements. It should not be obtained from unprotected exposure to ultraviolet UV radiation. So um, another little, you know, trivia fact, you probably already know this. The more fair-skinned you are, the better your vitamin D levels tend to be. The darker-skinned individuals tend to have lesser amounts of vitamin D in the skin. Could that be because there is melanin that is then also protecting from UV, not allowing it to get to the skin to make those vitamin D levels. Uh, Take home message from this is darker skin types, you know, whether Hispanic, African American, uh, or a blend of, you know, since we're all pretty much global now, uh, counsel your patients because they're gonna wanna know what to take as well. And um, certainly if we're talking about the role of vitamin D in cancer protection or, or perhaps prevention, Well, it's not just skin cancer, there are other ones as well, so even that has an effect on the levels. Uh, Again, back to the vitamin uh, vitamin D. Unprotected UV exposure to the sun or indoor tanning devices is a known risk factor for the development of skin cancer. Use of sunbeds has also been associated with increased risk for melanoma. To minimize the risk of UV-induced skin cancers, a comprehensive photoprotective regimen, including the regular use and proper use of a broad spectrum sunscreen is recommended. This is on the AAD website, but uh, of course I had to go look it up. So skin cancer, what's the big deal, all right? Why is skin cancer such a big deal? Whether it's melanoma or non-melanoma skin cancers, because we tend to typically, to use a crude expression, kind of blow off, you oh, it's a basal cell, it's cured 100%, no big deal, you'll have a little scar, blah, blah, blah. Well, studying, and this came out in the the Dermatology Daily, you know, the little news feed we get from the AAD. And you can customize it. So, of course, mine has anything to do with aesthetics and everything to do with melanoma. And, um... So so I pick and choose what I want to see. But this, a study indicated that patients with skin cancer may have increased chance of developing other types of cancer. And this came from the Northern Ireland Cancer Registry that 1,837 patients with melanoma showed risk of developing subsequent cancers. That was more than double that of the general population. So and I'm sure we all have patients in our practice that we can attest to the fact that they came to see us over the years for skin cancers and later on went on to develop lung cancer, colon cancer, or any other type of cancer. So patients with non-melanoma skin cancer were up to 57% more likely to develop another type of cancer than people in general population. So melanoma doubles your risk of an internal malignancy, and uh, non-melanoma for, for this database, 57% increase. We know what melanoma is. Cancerous mole. The incidence is increasing. 50% arise from a pre existing mole, and 50% arise de novo. Early detection is key. Although some are not sun related, so I have to keep defending myself like mine. Uh, almost all are related to sun exposure. Prevention minimize unnecessary sun exposure. All right, so again, melanoma from the Dermatology Daily from January 9th of this year. So this comes from Stanford University looking at epidemiological data between 1992 and 2004. The annual rate of, is increasing at 3.1% for all types of melanoma and all thicknesses of tumor. All right, so it is not just due to better screening alone. It is going up, and every day we get uh, emails on this, literature on this, it's in every place... Uh, you can imagine. And UVR is the primary and cause of melanoma. It's the second most common form of cancer for ages 15 to 29. Survival at five year varies with the stage of the disease. Stage one, anywhere from 89 to 95%. This just taking everything together. Stage two, 45 to 77. Stage three, 27 to 68. Stage four, nine to 19. I took this from the NIH, from the National Cancer Institute, from their website. Uh, Note that the ranges in survival reflect other prognostic factors at time of diagnosis, including tumor thickness, ulceration, which other organs are involved. Uh, For example, survival for stage 4 with lung mets is 3% by 10 years. Yay, that's my category. And uh, the lesson, early detection is key. So, optimizing sun protection. Recommendations from the Skin Cancer Foundation. Limit your sun exposure, don't burn, avoid tanning and UV tanning booths. I'm thrilled to see that we have legislation. I know in Texas now, minors need consent. Um, there needs to be more. I know from the Skin Cancer Foundation, mails us all kinds of things. The brochures came in on the indoor tanning beds, but really and truly, Whether it's I'm I'm shocked at how people have these light boxes at home. They buy these, you know, buy them at the back of the the magazines, um, and they're told, oh no, but this is a healthy kind of light. This isn't gonna, this isn't the cancer causing one. This is healthy. You can walk into tanning, you know, tanning salons in your city, and go in and just for fun, ask them, you know, about how healthy it is, or have there been any reports? Do they ever follow? Do they do they know? Has anybody ever come back and said? that they developed a skin cancer. So I'm, I'm really truly surprised that they're, that they're around and, and will continue to be around, but it's big business, it's cheap, you know, it's a light bulb and uh, people get their uh, packages for it and it's especially appealing to teenagers. And of course with teenagers, um, you know, their frontal lobe not completely developed, you don't really assess all your risks, etc. So it's just it's, it's like cigarette smoking. So that's what we have. So what do we tell patients? We say one ounce from head to toe 30 minutes before exposure. I tell patients to reapply every two hours regardless of label claims to prevent a false sense of security. I just say reapply, reapply, reapply. If you have your typical bottle that has four ounces in it, that means you've got four applications. So when somebody says, but doc, I've been using my sunscreen. Look, I've had this bottle now for two years. It just doesn't run out. Well, I guess it's not, it's magical. So, uh, so a lot of the times, and I think that when it comes to whether or not patients who use sunblock are at higher risk for skin cancer, uh, I think like everything else, I think we're really greatly underdosing ourselves. Everybody knows this little trivial fact, but if you have an SPF 15, you need two teaspoons or five, I'm um, sorry, 10 mLs for the face alone. So for the women who swear that their foundation gives them everything they want, I bet they're not putting on um, the full, you know, 10 mLs on their face alone because the one-ounce bottle that the makeup typically comes in, whether it be drugstore or department store, it would be gone in three days. Gone. So, um, So we know that there's a big problem with underdosing. So we'll go with SPF. Now remember, this doesn't take into account UVA protection. So the amount of sunscreen or sunblock applied is critical in achieving sun protection. Now we'll do a little transition. So this is something that I wrote in an article for San Antonio Medicine when they did, it was November of 06, and I'd been diagnosed a few months earlier, and they said that they were doing a feature, you know, doing an issue on the physician as patient. You know, we were definitely known for not being the best patients. Well, I think that's the male patients, the male doctors. Women doctors are excellent patients. So. I started out by saying I have always felt that everyone can define the day in which life changes forever. What I had not realized when I woke that morning was that May 10th, 2006 would be that day for me. Um, one of your colleagues, Courtney Aldridge, uh, who's a PA. Is, I don't know that Courtney's here. I haven't seen her, but uh, I know she just had her third child. Um, she... Uh, did an amazing job. She followed my orders to biopsy no matter how we did it because I had been having some scaling inside my belly button for a while. I didn't have a mole. And I'd say, Courtney, look in there. Put a flashlight. What's in there? She says, I don't know. It just looks dry. Uh, I, I don't really see anything. I said, well, let's get some hemostats in there. So I thought, and the only reason is it's an academic exercise. I thought, okay, if I'm getting psoriasis or eczema or I'm having some type of issue going on or maybe I have some kind of fistula, who knows? I've had three C-sections, but, but that belly button's intact. It's a, it, was a, it was a true innie. Uh, I thought, well, I better just know what it is. It had been going on for a few weeks. It didn't hurt. It didn't smell. It didn't bleed. It didn't do anything. Uh, after I biopsied it, of course, it bled. And uh, so we biopsied it, and it was Friday. It was a Friday, Cinco de Mayo. had margaritas after work. Uh, and even forgot that the, that the specimen picked up. On Wednesday, I had actually just planned to work half a day because... Um, My mom was in town. It was going to be grandparents' day at the kids' school. They were young at the time, younger at the time. And my mother-in-law was in from Mexico, and that is Mother's Day in Mexico. So it was going to be like a really fun afternoon of lunch and shopping, et cetera. And I get a call from the dermatopathologist. And he's like, "Uh, I'm afraid it looks really bad, Uh, melanoma. I don't know if this is a primary or a secondary met. So And my answer was, oh, I'm sorry. What patient are you calling about? Let me get the file. And he's like, no, it's you. And, then I, and, you know, you just kind of freeze. get that kind of clammy sweat. It's, it's a little different than a hot flash, for those of you who've ever had hot flashes, which I get to have now, too, because it's, like, cold. You don't really feel like on fire. Just this feeling that just went from head to the, to the feet. But I certainly didn't think, why me? But rather like, what can I do and how soon can I do it? You know, you don't have time to sit on the fence and think about all your options, just get moving. So luckily, a good friend of mine, Alex Miller, who's a surgical oncologist to whom I've sent over the years, DFSPs, melanomas, sarcomas, etc. I called over there, he happened to be in, and I was over there by, you know, within two hours. So that was that is kind of an advantage, but did that. So you, you get that way. But I tell my patients to do that. So when I have a patient now that needs to be seen, I just call everybody up and say, hey, remember when you took care of me, they need to go over there now. And, and people are very accommodating. What you don't want to do is just kind of tell the patient, call and set this up, etc. Because they're, they're in a state of shock. So, initial workup was negative for metastases. Are you kidding? By, that was a Wednesday. I got the news. Thursday, Friday, I had already uh, had colonoscopy, endoscopy, swallowed that little pill, that little capsule, and yes, it's an advantage. Even the, the GI guy had just, the, his wife had just delivered that Friday. He came in to read the, the study because they really weren't quite sure that it was a primary and could it be something coming from the gut. Uh, anything that has melanocytes, can, you know, you have the potential for, uh, for melanoma, and um, but I had a complete, dis- uh, growing, I mean, a complete excision and sentinel node biopsy on the 16th of May. So this is moving quickly. We're well, within six days. I've already had an overnight stay at the hospital, and waiting and waiting and waiting to find out, you know, what the results of the sentinel biopsy are. And well, I already gave it away; they were positive. But let me tell you, the three days of waiting were, uh, as you know, put you. You know, if it's negative, you're one stage. If it's positive, you're another stage, and with greatly different uh, prognostic, um, with greatly different prognosis. So I remember it was a Friday, and I thought, okay, we're going to the weekend. I haven't heard from the doctor. Where, what are the results? So I called Dr. Miller's office, and uh, Letty, his, his nurse was super nice, and, and I said, I'm sorry, but I haven't heard anything, and I, I would think I would already know by now. And she says, no, 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 doctor. I know that Dr. Um, Miller already spoke with Dr. Bukai. Well, my husband was kind of hanging around sheepishly around you know, the door, And he had already known, but he was going to like, wait to tell me the news until Monday. uh, Because we all know that worrying is far better than not knowing. So (laughs) that was, you know, what is that? So anyway. So i found out you know that it was positive and uh and i knew that I'd, i i was going to do an elective lymph node of radical groin dissection because if one is positive i mean who, how, how would i be so lucky to only have one that was positive some people are but i did have a radical groin dissection with removal of 28 nodes two that were two additional ones that were positive so technically at this point my from in the span of 20 days i've gone from Thinking I have a great future, and I'm such a fortunate woman, healthy children, great husband, uh, wonderful job, blah, 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 to um, 50-50 to be around at five years. So the decision then came, do I do interferon, do I not do interferon? And typically speaking, they say that interferon increases disease-free survival or disease-free time, but not overall survival. And the um, side effects can be quite grueling, but I thought, well, this is my rationale, and this is what I tell patients now. Well, maybe there's not something else right now that'll increase survival, but if it's disease-free, before I, well, I'm still good protoplasms, in case, something, in case I wanna get into a study or something, I might as well just stay better now while something else comes along. So I decided to do it, plus, what the heck, doctor said I couldn't go to work for six weeks, which is driving me crazy. Courtney held up the front really well, bringing me charts at the end of the day so I could, you know, review them, and uh, she'd photograph patients in case there was something unusual. I mean, she did a spectacular job uh, keeping that practice going so we didn't have to lay off anybody or or do anything, because I was in and out of the office so much that year. So I did, in July, I took the IV interferon, millions and millions of, of units IV, and uh, I slept. I slept a lot. I felt fine. I slept a lot. Well, it turns out I slept because they kept giving me Benadryl to minimize (laughs) the rash because when I gave it to myself sub-Q, I was perfectly energetic and I did that while I was waiting to find out about a study uh, on uh, evaluating anti-CTLA-4 antibody. And uh, so... Of course, it was great timing to be diagnosed when a lot of new research was going on, and I kept hearing the name Jeffrey Weber, Jeffrey Weber at USC, at the Norris Cancer Center at USC. He has since gone on to Moffitt, which is a melanoma center of excellence, uh, and that's in Florida. So these are, and when I say names, I'm happy to provide any contacts for you and facilitate anything that if a patient needs to get into something. Um, So... While I was waiting to go back to work since I had to be out for six weeks and right before the interferon I went to Pittsburgh to see John Kirkwood who did, uh, who's done a lot, of the, a lot of the work with interferon and I went to MD Anderson to see if there was anything happening over there and I was very happy with the care in San Antonio so I said well okay we're going to do the interferon. Then I was lucky enough to... Um, to be in the right time, you know, frame for doing the trial at USC. Initially, they said that if I had done an interferon, I would not qualify because it had to be somebody that came, you know, uh, treatment naive. To, and the, the study was to see if it could prevent recurrence of melanoma. Uh, later on, that that changed. The parameters changed, and I was accepted in to that trial. Uh, are you familiar with anti-CTLA4, or ipilimumab, or however you pronounce this? It's one of the many biologics around. Well, basically, what CTLA4 does is that it it uh, it's a regulator in your immune system. It blocks excessive production of killer cells, so it tells the body when to stop, so you don't just you know self implode, and so it takes the reins off the immune system. And interferon well interferon just helps you know um, helps um, with with attacking, but doesn't really multiply the number of of T cells that you have. Interleukin-2, which is something else I was going to do down the road, it gives you clonal expansion of your, of your T helper cells. All right? So, or, um, and, um, and, and I mean, if I say it wrong, I'm sorry, but it gives you your, your, T, your T cells. So if you've got, so the idea was having, already. I thought, well, this is even better because I've done some interferon. I haven't done interleukin, but if they can just take the reins off the immune system, we can go kill, you know, kill that melanoma thing, you know, get rid of it. So I got in and what that entailed was going to and from San Francisco San Francisco, LA every two weeks, hop on Southwest Airlines on the you know, six fifty AM, get over there get my treatment or blood work, etc. And if anyone's participating in a trial, they can be very stringent. They want everything done over there, even if it's for a CBC. Hop on the plane, go over there. I'm fortunate that, yes, I could pay for those trips. And I was also fortunate to have health insurance. At the time, it was Aetna that would pay for the treatments. Even though it was experimental, there were still other costs to be covered. So that was one of the, the things that happened. So... Um, so I was just along my merry way, had gone on a cruise in December to celebrate my mother-in-law's 70th birthday. I have a great mother-in-law. What a great idea to get all her kids and grandkids together and treat them to a Caribbean cruise. And so that was, so that was great. And I look at pictures back then thinking, did I, was there something I was missing? You know, because apparently I already had the Mets and didn't know it. And uh, no, I pretty much looked the same. So um, you don't have to look sick to be sick, all right? And I know that you know that lesson, but it's, it's always worth repeating. You don't have to look sick to be sick. So I was doing the trial and I went, it was an ice day. It got cold in San Antonio. It was weird, it iced over. So we had to cancel patients, but I went to the office to catch up on, on paperwork, which you know is never ending. And I said, oh, I might as well get that, I gotta go get that CT of the chest before I go back for my treatment in February. So that was all scheduled to, to happen. And not but a few seconds later, the wonders of all the technology we have where they upload all the images, somebody on call reads them, and uh, boom. So I get a call. I'm always by myself when I get these calls. So I get the call that says, uh, by the way, uh, there's a lot of nodules in both lungs, so I thought, I was intellectualizing everything. I thought, well, but my immune system is so stimulated, I have a rash on my skin because the rash is good. If you get a, a rash with a CTLA-4, that was good. Uh, it meant thing, things were working, right? And I thought, no, I must just have like a rash inside my lungs. I thought, oh, there's some epithelium. You know, you start thinking things. And I felt perfectly fine. Um, but apparently they said you got to have a lung biopsy. I wasn't getting out of that one. The thing is, my youngest daughter, Gabriella, who will be 15 years old next month, had just turned 12 and was having her bat mitzvah. And it was like 400 people at the San Antonio Museum of Art with family from Mexico coming in. I had a fabulous dress. I was not going to get a big scar to ruin the dress. and But, but all joking aside, Honestly, it was two weeks away when I got the news, and I thought, if I do the biopsy immediately, is it really going to make a difference? You know, and I, I am a doer and a go-getter, but I thought, eh, two weeks. If it's gonna be bad, it's gonna be bad, but at least let's have two happy weeks. And I was able to put it away in a drawer, go about my business normally, make flower arrangements, take care of people, go to work, etc. My husband was a wreck, a wreck. He's like, I can't believe you're making me wait two weeks. I'm like, I'm making you wait? Like, let just just get on with it. Help me with the party, and it'll be done. So we had the wonderful uh, event. Sunday was Super Bowl Sunday, and then in the fifth, into the fifth, I went into the hospital, uh, bright and early, and I had two requests: that if it was melanoma, my husband had to be the one to tell me and not keep it from me like he tried before and that we would go to the NIH to see Steven Rosenberg who you know has, has done so many of the treatment. He's He's been a mentor to so many, including Jeffrey Weber's, John Kirkwood, et cetera. So I thought, well, that's where all the trials are happening. So the lung biopsy came back positive for melanoma. And um, so we just had to move on that. Once again, so the oncologist is like, okay, we're gonna start your IL-2 immediately. And I'm like, no, you're not. I'm going to the NIH, and you're gonna help me get an appointment. Anybody can get an appointment, but it always helps if somebody can forward your studies and do all of that. What an amazing place that is, unbelievable. And at the end, they have a big consensus meeting, blah, 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 they call you a couple of days later. And it was, you first have to do IL-2 and if, if it doesn't work, we'll take you into a trial. But for now, it's the only FDA-approved drug for, um, for melanoma, for stage 4 melanoma. It's also for, for renal cell carcinoma, as you know. But uh, I, we don't want to withhold that from you from the off chance that it worked. So I was already thinking I'll be in D.C. for a couple of months, and uh, the NIH is wonderful because there is actually housing for family. They have their own travel agency. Everything is, you don't need a dime to go in there for anything. It is a resource available to all patients. So uh, they can self-refer. And um, so doctors still wanted to start the, you know, the IL-2. And, um, and I said, you know what, my favorite rock group is playing in Laredo on the 23rd. It's, it's Manada from Mexico, and I really wanted to see them. And I did. I went to see them. I thought, what the heck, if, it's gonna, if I'm sick anyway, I might as well do all the stuff that I like, which is the take-home message, right? Uh, you don't necessarily regret the things you do, but you definitely regret the things that you don't do. So that is one of my you know, small changes in perspective in, in terms of always trying to do the right thing trying to to please everybody we're in a service we're in a service field we want to make people happy we want to give them good news we want to please others sometimes you about staying healthy is also about keeping yourself happy as well and i consider myself happy but but in particular as 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 a mom also we tend to be more self-sacrificing cuz there's just not enough hours in the day and frankly nobody else wants to take the kids to try on jeans and shoes and hear about tantrums and you know who did what to them so you know it's it's me So I did the IL-2. So I went in in the early March, got in, and I opted to have it with a PIC line that would be removed every time because the incidence of MRSA is much higher. I certainly didn't want to have any cardiac problems. I'm married to a cardiologist, yes. But uh, why risk it? I said, nah, if I can stick myself with Botox needles, I can get a PIC line. So that was it. Oh, and wrestling, that's a little bit more. So... I went in, had that done, and really it was kind of a cakewalk. The first treatment side effects are not so good. Uh, the, you can read the package insert for yourself. It's uh, it's proleukin or aldisleukin. It's a Novartis drug. Uh, so that and I've said that not too promote them. Nobody should want to you know, to do this, but if you want to go on the website and look up what all the side effects are, I don't have to dwell on that. But capillary leak syndrome is one of them, and people's blood pressure tends to go down tremendously, decreased perfusion, which then can affect your kidneys, your brain, your lungs. They give you liquids to try to keep your pressure up, along with some pressures like neosinephrine. but then if you overload with the liquids, and then you can't eliminate them, well, it was not a pretty sight. Not only do you feel kind of lousy, they weigh you in the bed, so this this is given in the intensive care unit, and uh, the treatment involves uh, a dose every eight hours for, if possible, 14 doses, but they're happy if you can get eight or nine. So, um, so what happened with that was, I think I'm running, I'm gonna have to hurry up with this. Uh, it was just insult to injury. You're in there, you get weighed, and then when you leave the hospital, you're 15 pounds heavier, nothing fits, but then you get some Lasix and it all comes out, take a break for a week, and then go get another week of it. And, um, and then wait, wait for a month. They can't image you right away because it can actually cause some re- renal damage. So you wait a month, and I guess because also the body has to work. So I was so lucky because it was April 23rd and we were gonna find out if it was, I was even going to be a responder and I was so lucky that I had a 60% reduction of the tumors. I went to work. Got, well, I went to get my, my study, I went to work, and then my husband came to the office. This is so corny, but he comes in with a red rose and crying, and I'm thinking either I'm going to die or he's happy. So <laughs> it's just, which was it? But it was good. It was really good, and we're all happy jumping up and down, patients and the staff. And so I did two more weeks of the interleukin II, and this is when it was really hard to wait. It was so, so hard to wait till a month after. So I finished late June, and I had to wait till August 1st, which was the day of my scan. The, um, and I was very lucky. They were all gone by August 1st. So, it's great. Thank you. So that, thank you. Yeah, I know it's, it's. I worked really hard at it. No, you do have to think very positive. And I do wanna say that I hold the record in Methodist Hospital. I got 14 out of 14 doses on one of mine. Usually I got like 12, I could get like 12 out of them and make, will myself to uh, to do it. Oh, let me, just as an fact, as an aside, when we look at protocols, et cetera, we're so used to doing things a certain way. I have to say that my husband and my pulmonary doc were super smart. The protocol involves getting non-steroidal to treat the flu-like, uh, the flu-like symptoms that are even much, much worse than they are with interferon. Uh, and it can also give you Demerol for, for rigors. However, on my first round of it, the, the reason they held one of the doses was that my creatinine had gone up. So the next time around, Uh, since it came back down again, they withheld the the non-steroidals, and I never had any problems at all with the creatinine. So, in light of the fact that we see things, all the stuff on the news about non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, things like, uh, which, even though it's not technically that category, but Tylenol and others, let's think about every little thing that supposedly is harmless that we give to our patients, because it can have an effect on somebody as well. So... If you have, so we knew that 14% were partial. You know, 14% of patients that get IL-2 are partial responders, and 6% get a complete response. And of course, I'm an overachiever. I want to be in that complete response. I'm not going to sit around being in the 86th percentile or whatever the like that. But what I didn't know, and this is what I did not want, I'm glad I didn't know it, is that partial responders have a median survival of five months, whereas complete responders are considered to have a durable remission or a cure. I guess once you've been stage four, they don't call you cured, but, you know, that's, that's what's presumed. So they're still following out the survival since this was FDA-approved in 1994 for, for that. So for now, I get CTs and MRIs every three months, uh, but then came February. Okay, I started hot flashing, got into some premature menopause, or maybe I refused to accept the fact that at 49, I could be menopausing anyway. But I had pulmonary nodules out of the blue. I felt great. And Dr. Drangler's like, no, we're gonna biopsy. He even got Weber on the phone, because I said, if "We want a con- conference call. He says, I already knew you were gonna do that, so he's, all, he's calling in, and sure enough, so all three of us are discussing. And I said, with all due respect, guys, I'm not going into the hospital today for a biopsy or for some biochema, which doesn't even work. Um, but I'm going to take control this time. I said, I've been a good girl. I've done everything you told me to do. But this time I'm going to, you know, kind of take charge that way. And, of course, they laughed. They're like, uh, since when don't you always do everything you want to do? But anyway, so I thought about it. I got on, I got on the email. I got back to the office. And there was a, one of those little AOA blurbs about the effects of estrogens and hormones on melanoma in women. And once again, this came from the U.K., And I thought, oh, my God, I've been taking all this black cohosh. And even though another oncologist in town, Amy Lang, who specializes in breast cancer, had said it's never been fully proven to have an effect, I know that I definitely had stability. No hot flashes, no vasomotor symptoms of any kind, Uh, slept very well, et cetera. And I don't think it was placebo because if I would only take it once a day instead of twice daily, I would have breakthrough of the symptoms. And it was primarily for me. I thought I had become allergic to red wine. But I would get, like, almost an urticarial erythema, like a raccoon. And, and I wouldn't even feel it. But people would walk up and say, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Well, it turned out that was just kind of an unusual presentation of, of like, a hot flash, if you will. So, uh, so now that there's a study suggesting a link between estrogen and melanoma, I said, okay, I'm going to ditch the black cohosh. And so I finagled to get my scan a month later, went to the AAD earlier this year in San Francisco, had a wonderful time. And, um, so the scan was totally clear March 11th. So I had scans the 10th and the 11th in case it was error, but the one on the, that was in February, and then the 11th totally clear. Will I ever know what those nodules were, you know, from an academic sense? No, because uh, we didn't biopsy it. It could have just been a regular little nodule that anybody living in South Central Texas can have, and it goes away. But, you know, in light of my history, it's always gonna be more alarming to those treating me. So I just had one a few weeks ago on the 23rd of uh, this last month, and it was perfectly normal. So even if you do everything right, things can still go wrong. So why should you care or even try? And because uh, I always kept thinking, how am I going to counsel patients? You know, here I am supposed to be the example. And I get it in a non-exposed area. Um, how do I even justify what I'm saying, making, you know, recommendations? And I think it's like in everything else. You know, you take responsibility and ownership of a situation, whether it's a disease or any other situation, and, uh, and, and take the necessary steps to try to prevent complications and recurrence. So that's one of the the, the messages I wanted to give you. So here we go. This is what you tell your patients as well. Although you cannot control your genes, you can and must take ownership and responsibility for your skin's health, which which is ultimately a reflection of your overall health. So that's something that it's so easy now for me to tell patients, you know what? This is okay. It may not be a big deal. But your skin is telling you what's going on inside your body, and you can't control what you were born with. You know whether you're five feet tall or six feet tall, etc. But you can certainly control what you, you know, to your your exposure to to things that can be bad for you. So it's like I tell my kids when they're getting you know irritated about something or something's going on again. My, my daughters now are in like basically 19, 17, and 15, so it's it's a hormonal storm. The um, yeah, it's, it's not pretty. So we, I tell them, you know what? You cannot control other people's actions, but you can control your reactions. That applies to everything in life. So that's just something that I think about every day because that's one of the things I was, you know, I think about it. I'm like, you're right. I just don't even get upset about these things. People get at the office like, can you believe such and such did this, such and such did that? No, 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 the only thing that really got me a little bit peeved was last night when I thought I had two hotel nights, and I only have one, and thus I'm flying out later on after I saw what a great venue. Again, Greg, fabulous job organizing this, wonderful, wonderful place to have the meeting. So facts about the skin, largest organ of the body, it's constantly renewing itself. It's important in regulating body temperature, vital to the immune system, uh, provides protection from the environment. And of course, it's one of the standards by which our beauty is measured as well. And when I need to stop, you all tell me, all right? And so what about beauty? So beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Health can exist without beauty, but beauty cannot exist without health. And the steps to beauty cannot compromise health. Again, no tanning beds. Uh, I do a lot of again, I and I do a lot of injectables. I'm constantly telling patients, uh, you know, if you're looking for a bargain, make sure you're not putting something, you know, deleterious into your body as well. And uh, and and we have to be more accepting about of ourselves as well. You know, we don't all fit one mold or one standard. Um, so I, I think, you know, we all have different perceptions of what beauty is, but I definitely think that my approach to patients is keep them healthy, and in terms of, if we're talking, quote-unquote, rejuvenation or facial aesthetics, I like to maximize their potential. You don't give somebody what nature didn't give them. So, and I've said this over and over again at other presentations, but you can certainly make the most of what they have. And, and they go hand-in-hand. Hand. It's very difficult to separate out um, health issues from cosmetic issues, believe it or not. And one of the things that I know, I hear from patients repeatedly when they've switched doctors, sometimes they're like, well, my doctor just didn't think it was important. I don't like my brown patches on my face. I feel people look at me. Uh, I'm self-conscious about uh, whatever, seborrheic dermatitis, you know, they'll, however they want to." And doctors are like, well... I'll, I'll t- I'm going to go to this one. The, a typical one is when a woman is worrying about hair loss, and a physician, it could be female or male, dismissively says, you know what? It's just hair. At least you don't have cancer, etc. You know what? If you don't feel like you look your best, you don't feel your best. And I think that's a very important point, and that's not something to minimize patients' concerns. So I have a little recipe for healthy and beautiful skin. It takes me forever to handwrite it all the time, but sun protection, antioxidants. Retinoids or alpha-hydroxy acids to increase cell renewal. As you know, in your 20s, epidermal uh, lifespan is around 28 days. As we get into our 40s, it's around 45 days, 40s and beyond. Why? And then that skin looks rougher, duller, drier, etc. cetera. That's why you have to kind of rev it up. Collagen boosters and DNA repair. And uh, well, this company, AGI Dramatics, no longer exists, but uh, Daniel Yarosh, who's a phytobiologist who began at the National Cancer Institute at the NIH, um, had a little company and had all kinds of DNA repair products that got bought out by Estee Lauder, and they have a partnership also with um, with Allergan. So they have their their Clinique Medical line, which incorporates bits and pieces of it. But I'm not privy to our consultant for for them in this, so I couldn't tell you the exact formulations. But but there is uh, there is somebody who actually used to be at AGI and has the formulation. So we do have DNA repair lotion, and I'm happy to share that with you all, uh, but not, like, not on the podium so it doesn't look like a commercial presentation. So I like the future of skincare is driven by the convergence of dermatology and cosmetics, as well as the aging of the baby boomer generation. We are ready. So all you have to do is go to CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, Target. Where else can you go? Every, info, every other infomercial is about skincare, personal skin products or personal personal care products 48 billion dollar industry all right so It definitely does not behoove us to dismiss a patient's question about what lotion they should use, saying it's all the same, et cetera, because there are some differences. And there are products that are mass, you know, mass with class, like you would see at a retailer like Target, et cetera. But then there are others that are going to be more high end and some that are lower end. But a lot of them are made by the same companies and share a lot of the similar ingredients, just the amount that's in them. There's something for everybody. So some protection, make it a habit. I'm not gonna dwell on that. But antioxidants, why are they important? Well, they scavenge free radicals and neutralize them. And you have two things that happen with free radicals, right? You can go to the DNA mutations. You can have DNA damage, or you can go to the aging cascade, which is caused by upregulation of matrix metalloproteinases, or MMPs, which uh, you can think of collagenase and elastase as some of those enzymes. So UV triggers the production of those. Then you have increased breakdown of collagen and elastin. And, uh, and then decrease production of collagen as you get older. So that's why antioxidants are great. Um, oral antioxidants are important to oral health, but very little reaches the skin to be effective, which is why they need to be applied. Vitamin A acid compounds such as you know, the retinoids, so normalize the cell renewal process and increase cell uh, turnover as well. Got some retinoid alternatives for those who are not tolerant or maybe are pregnant. And, and need to use something else. And, and uh, one of the ones that bears note is uh, the shiitake mushroom, of all the mushrooms that exist in the world, the shiitake mushroom is the only one that has retinol-like activity that increases cell renewal, cell turnover without the irritation. Collagen boosters, um, our ability to make collagen declines with age keeps it firm and plump, gives it support. So what I just talked about again in the antioxidants, that's why I can't, I can't separate them. But uh, the the more sun we get, the thinner the skin becomes. How many patients do we have that live out in farms, ranches, or heavy-duty sun exposure and have thin skin? They're like, Doc, my skin bruises so easily. I'm always having bruises. It must be that aspirin. You know, aspirin or no aspirin, trauma or no trauma, if you've lost that support structure around the vasculature, it's very easily going to bleed uh, as well. So the skin becomes kind of paper-like. It tears easily, like even with a Band-Aid. So things to think about. So, so even using something to stimulate collagen production. And if they don't want to use something to stimulate collagen production, there's our old friend, the sunblock, that minimizes free radical damage um, as well. And a lot of sunblocks now come with antioxidants in them. So growth factors and peptides... Um, And food for thought could growth factors lead to skin cancers. I used to use a product. I'm not going to say the name up here, but I can do it privately. And it's a great, fantastic product that I used to carry in my office. But when I was on interferon, I developed two red scaly spots on my face that I never had before. And then they sloughed and fell off. And I thought, God, they're either actinic keratoses or superficial basal cells. Where did they come from? And then I got to thinking, well, when we do Aldera for patients and they're it, it it, the mod, it upregulates interferon production, right? That's why it works for AKs. That's one of the mechanisms also it's some of the anti-angiogenesis while I was getting IV interferon I was like on the fast track to getting rid of some subclinical lesions and then I thought well you know I've been on this particular product for you know a couple of years perhaps that did it so this product also contains in its mixture in its broth of skin of, of growth factors has vascular endothelial growth factor VEGF angiogenesis is often the target of cancer therapy right so things to think about when you don't cavalierly just say hey put this on this will make you look beautiful because if the person has some you know, obvious photo damage and even some um, clinical things like AKs, perhaps we couldn't be inducing progression of it. I'm not saying that's what caused the melanoma because I wasn't, I don't think, getting enough systemic absorption, nor was I putting it inside the belly button. But uh, that's one of the things. I wrote to the company that makes this particular product, spoke with their, their medical director, and still, this is several months ago, and have emailed back and promised to get back to me because I'd like to see studies that have shown that there is not... Uh, any change or report. So like myself, I've had two other patients that reported that. So I've just taken myself off of that particular product. DNA repair, it really does work. I have one of those Visias by Canfield, and it was initially developed for P&G, Procter & Gamble, to measure how effective, you know, Olay Regenerist or some of the, you know, some of their, their skincare lines were. And, um, and definitely, for patients that are compliant and do BID application, there's definitely a 40 to 50% reduction in the UV spots that carry on to the new cells. Assuming that there's good photo protection, you can undo some of that sun damage at, um, at the level of the skin. Uh, does that mean that people will have less skin cancer? This hasn't been around enough to know whether or not. Uh, I can tell you that on a on a... Practical basis, people's skin, when we then do their other parameters, their wrinkles and texture, et cetera, improve, even when used as monotherapy, because we have a lot of guys that use this. So, recipe, another lesson learned. Healthy mind, body, and spirit. Accept who you are. Love yourself enough to improve on what you can. Make the changes you want to make. No one's going to do it for you. Make the best of what is dealt to you. And To me, adversity is opportunity equals a positive change. And I definitely walked those, you know, and will probably walk for a long time. That fine line between cautious optimism and healthy denial. When do you let your guard down? You never let your guard down. You know, you have to be, it, it doesn't matter what you're in, whether it's getting up on a podium to speak, um, playing baseball, tennis, golfing, etc., cetera, uh, taking an exam. The, the minute that you, don't, that you don't have a little bit of that fear factor, not an unhealthy, but just a little bit of that, that, uh, that drives you to want to do your best, and you become complacent and you kind of get behind in the game. And so it, it's good. It's good to stay current with, with things. And I had found this little saying, and I don't even know where I found this saying, but science is the refusal to believe on the basis of hope. Keep this in mind, don't give your patients bad news and tell them that it's you know hopeless, they might as well not even try. A lot of that does go on. Um, and I wrote a thing for the Melanoma Letter uh, that Skin Cancer Foundation had asked me to do it a year ago because they said a lot of doctors did not uh, offer patients uh, uh, you know, treatments once they were in advanced stages. So I kind of changed it. And said hope is the refusal to believe when faced with the science. That's hope. Hope doesn't have to do hope and faith do not require proof. That's something that you can always give your family, yourself, and your patients. I do, I kept a journal. Doris Day, a great dermatologist in New York, told me, keep a journal and go back and reread it and see what I said, okay, I'll see what nonsense I wrote under the delirium. So I wrote on July 3rd, 2007, I had just gotten out of the hospital and had to wait you know, almost a whole month to get my, my results. So I wrote, life is a balance between joy and sorrow. It is the pursuit of that balance that is so magical. For my part, I feel great. I know the IL-2 is working and I'm willing myself to be melanoma free. I cannot control things around me, but I can control my reactions. I should be able to achieve a healthy balance in the mind and body. And then and continuing. The greatest gift that the melanoma has bestowed upon me is the great appreciation and love I have for my family and friends. I believe that I was named Vivian and I really hated my name growing up, which means life because I truly enjoy living. I also believe that I was drawn into dermatology for many reasons, but also, perhaps also, because God gives us the opportunity to shape our lives and to do everything to preserve it. Thank you so much for listening to me and I'll uh, happy to answer any questions. We don't, we don't. do questions, right? Anybody have any questions? Or vbukai.aol.com is my email. Did you do have? Uh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Question. I had a, I yes.
1: Had a question. Hi. Um, thank you very much for that wonderful presentation. By oh, the way, thank you for that listening. Was very, very moving. Um, the uh, my question about the antioxidants. So when you apply that in the morning and you get exposed to the sun, doesn't that break down the antioxidant and then just make it, do you know the lifetime of a topical antioxidant?
0: That's a wonderful, wonderful question, and that's something I haven't studied, but now I'm going to go look for that answer for you. When I typically do a skincare regimen, and I tailor it, I mean, most patients will agree to have the Vizia scan, even if they don't want to see the results. Um, I typically will do the antioxidant um, with the sunblock, in it, so I don't know what the stability, but I just assume to, certain, to a certain extent, if you're looking like vitamin C, which is you know so unstable, yeah. et cetera, it's got to be a formulation that has been shown to have stability, and there are some on the market that have been shown to have that long-term stability that aren't oxidized, so you've got to assume that uh, if you can have a bottle with a shelf life of, an, of a year, you could apply it, you know, take a drop out of it, cap it, put it away, yeah. and put a sunblock over it. To first of all, reflect the UV, which triggers the free radical. So you've got the antioxidant there to pick up anything that gets, you know, that, that isn't shielded. It may not be the best answer I have for you. It's the only answer I have. No,
1: I, I appreciate it. And sure, I have one other question. Um, when on chemotherapy, I have a lot of patients on chemotherapy, um, and why does IL-2 or any of the other chemotherapies? Why does it cause an increased number in SKs? Is it because the skin cells
0: don't turn over? As fast or I have not I did not have an increased number of SKs and I'm I'm a triple biologic I'm a biologic woman IL2 CTLA4 and interferon Uh, I have not seen an increased number of SKs but if you have a reference I will look that up and try to give you an an idea of why that would happen
1: yeah I don't have a reference I just I used to work in oncology and then um, it's more in the adults so I don't, it the really, like, people over 60, but I have a couple patients with renal cell carcinoma on IL-2, and all of them have developed numerous SKs, so I was just curious. If right, well, it. there's a
0: sign of Laisse-Trelat, which, you know, so, you know, whether or not yeah. you subscribe to that, where well, you've got the explosion of it, but I know it's an epidermal, so it's got to be something to do with, with lack of regulation. Right. Okay. of, of um, some of the changes in the skin, of, you know, in terms of hyperkeratosis, but not enough shedding or apop not enough, uh, let's say, shedding yeah. of the skins you've got concentrated. But I wouldn't say that I've noticed them after chemo. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh,
1: thank you again for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Um, for, thank you. I just have a, a, one question. How How did the your melanoma was pretty atypical the way it presented How has that changed your practice style? I think we've all experienced that sort of paranoia you get When you biopsy something that you're sure is nothing And it comes
0: back positive Right, you're, you, you hit a perfectly very, very good point I biopsy far more frequently I no longer you know, decide that I have such great clinical skills That I can you know, just ignore things How many of you have biopsied what was very obviously to you an, uh, A seborrheic keratosis and it came back melanoma See? It's, it's, it's scary, isn't it? So you have to kind of take it in the context. So I went in doubt. what I learned in medical school. Went in doubt, cut it out. And I do that. And uh, I also do much more th- Well, I always did thorough skin exams, but now my threshold is all my patients that come in for cosmetic procedures, if they don't have a primary dermatologist who does their skin exams, uh, they either agree to have one with me or sign a waiver that they declined because I, can, I cannot tell you the number of patients I've seen over the years that I was seeing for fillers and Botox, or now we have Dysport also, keeping it fair and balanced, that had squamous cells on the face, but also in hidden areas. It's too embarrassing to treat somebody to make them look outwardly good when something bad is happening underneath. So that's what I do. I do m- more biopsies and, uh, and really insist that patients get the skin exams. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Can you expand a little bit on sunblock as, as far as the numbers now? Like there's an 85, there's a 100. Is there really a, a huge difference between those?
0: No. No, there's not a huge difference. I guess unless you have xeroderma pigmentosum, but then you want DNA repair lotion. And actually that the ingredient in there is something that's a, an orphan drug that was used in patients with XP uh, since they can't repair their thymine dimers. The, um, I counsel patients with a 30 and beyond, and more than the actual number because that's only, of course, you know, for the UVB rays. It doesn't address UVA. And I know the FDA is working right on changing labeling, et cetera, and it's got to be like 30 plus, or uh, there's always something going on and nobody agrees. And there's like the environmental protection factor, et cetera. I just like to use a good 7 to 9% or, you know, of um, zinc oxide, titanium dioxide, the micronized formula. So I have the UVA protection and UVB. It's broad spectrum that way. And I also like to use use some with antioxidants, such as polyphenols or the green tea extracts in them, as well. But the number is it's it's the number is important, but it's the amount again. So, doing that. Thanks. Hi, I have a patient who had a primary melanoma approximately 11 years ago, and was recently diagnosed with brain uh, Mets. Do you think it would be worth her while to try to visit the NIH? I think so, absolutely, because mm-hmm. there are people who survive I've known patients that have survived uh brain mets long-term, long term long long term survival, and that's another way that my practice has changed is I get referrals from all over the place from former you know teachers and uh, other patients and from other countries, so I see a lot more melanoma now, and you know we we hope for the best outcome from everybody for everybody but to do nothing, it's gotta, be, it's gotta be less. And there's a saying in Spanish, is no hay peor lucha que la que no se hace. And so that's something to the effect of, you know, there's not a worse fight, than the worst battle than the one that isn't fought. So, she's been to a university setting and was basically sent home to die. So, I mean, she's kind of been in, at a loss and is planning her death, but. I just wondered. But the most important thing is, has she expressed an interest in trying, you know, trying all resources? Then that's important, because if she's at peace with it, well, then, no, you don't want to push her, Uh right? But if she's still wanting to, absolutely keep going. Thank you. Thank you.